The following content is explicit. It's Thursday, November 30th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Read about Matt Lauer. Now I need a shower. Lauer reportedly preyed upon many women who worked for him and near him at NBC. Still, when news broke, we got this, this in memoriam type segment on Morning Joe. Here was Willie Geist saying his heart was with the accuser, who didn't know, but also this was where his heart was. It's with the staff of the Today Show that's worked with Matt for almost 25 years wow. and considered him a friend. And he is the leader over there. You know, he's the he's in charge. So I'm thinking about all my friends across the street and my thoughts, of course, are with Matt. He's been uh, a friend. He's been um, he's been a mentor. He's been a guy you could watch, a guy who led by his example on on the set. The way he treated the crew, the way he knew everybody's name, the the class and dignity he carried himself with. The class and dignity of all those times he chose not to expose his genitals to me like he reportedly did to younger females on the staff. And the button. You know about the button, right? The button installed at Matt Lauer's desk so he could lock the door remotely after someone walked in. I have to say, I know a lot was made about this detail and it seems bad, but I didn't get it. The allegation is that Lauer had a button and someone would walk in and he could lock the door of the office behind that person. Not lock the person in, just lock the door of the office. But isn't that, you know, how a doorknob works? That little widget on the inside, you turn it one way, the door stays open. You turn it the other way, the door locks. It seems evil. It seems to have been used for a nefarious intent in the case of Lauer. But I'm not sure how it actually aided his task. It's a little like Q showing James Bond. This is a special instant pillow that will deploy from the steering wheel should the Aston Martin ever crash. Uh, Yes, Q, it's an airbag. They've been standard on Chrysler since 1988. So listen, I will excuse Willie Geist for turning an indictment into an elegy. We're all human. The guy was shocked. And the rest of the Morning Joe team didn't do anything to correct him. They added to it. But when, I should note... That a couple of weeks ago, their frequent contributor, Mark Halperin, was similarly undone by tales of harassment, and back then their tone was just as deaf. So sad for our colleague, and of course the women, but we had no idea, and again, our fine, fine colleague. So maybe you'd learn from that, maybe you'd grow from that. Now this time I did notice Mika, who runs a women's empowerment conference called Knowing Your Value, I noticed she sat out the Lauer hagiography. But you know what? It isn't just morning show icons from New York. Also caught up in the snare of harassment was a certain Lutheran codger from the expanses of Minnesota. Powder milk biscuits. Yes, Garrison Keeler accused of groping and dropped by Minnesota Public Radio. He said it was one time and his hand slipped or something. We'll see. But his explanatory statement was a masterclass in smug righteousness. I've been fired over a story that I think is more interesting. And by the way, can a blowhard actually only speak in a whisper? Is he a blow soft? Do we really trust Garrison Keillor to find what's interesting? But I'll read the exact quote. I've been fired over a story that I think is more interesting and more complicated than the version Minnesota Public Radio heard. Most stories are. He goes on, it's some sort of poetic irony to be knocked off the air by a story, having told so many myself. So he's calling the accuser a liar? Or he just doesn't understand what story means? 
You know, John Hershey's Hiroshima, that was also a story. Story could be work of fiction. Story can mean an account. But then Keeler turns to the poets. Always the poets with this guy. He says, I'm sorry for all the poets whose work I won't be reading on the radio. And sorry for the people who will lose work on account of this. It's the poets. The poets are always the ones who suffer. I apologize, Auden. Sorry, Sylvia Plath. Sorry for denying you all your buttermilk biscuits. Oh, my God. Listen, if all this guy really did was touch a woman's back once, well, actually, then Garrison Keillor is as great a defender of poetry as the New England Society for the Suppression of Vice. This guy's selling out the poets. If you didn't do it, you got to stand up for the poets, Garrison. The poets need you. How can you abandon the poets in this hour of discontent? What a load of powder milk. On the show today, I spiel, uh, I spiel some nice things about Morning Joe or things he did not deserve. But first, Min Jin Lee, she really is poetic in her prose. Her book was just named one of the 10 best of the year, the year 2017 by the New York Times. I got interested in it when I started reading about these people, the Zenichi. Uh, they live in Japan. They are ethnic Koreans. Some of them are still loyal to North Korea. I became fascinated. And then I became aware that there was this book, which I knew had been written. It's named Pachinko, which is a game when I lived in South Korea, which is a game I played. It's not much fun. You usually lose your money. So that's how I came to it. And man, what a well-crafted work it is. And what an interesting conversation I had with author Min Jin Lee. If you want a good podcast to listen to, check out Slate's Slow Burn. It's a podcast about Watergate. It tells about the people you might not have remembered, or if you're younger than Watergate, demographic show, many of us are, people you never even knew about in the first place. It tells kind of personal stories. And what it does is, and Leon Nafak, former guest host of The Gist, is brilliant at this, is it doesn't assume you know what's going to happen, and it asks constantly. Just imagine you're reading the paper, getting your news from the evening news at that time, how the future would be uncertain. What was the future then is the past now. So if you just recast it with that little bit of difference, it really comes alive, as they say. If you want to talk about great first lines, I would say, you know, we could talk Dickens. Little little wordy, that guy. Here's the first line of Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. History has failed us, but no matter. I was grabbed. 500 pages later, I was edified. Min Jin Lee's book, Pachinko, deals with Koreans living in Japan, uh, dislocation, generations, occupation, and she's here with me now. Hello, thanks for coming in. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm well. Okay, so let's do the thing where just tell me, sketch out for the listener what the book's about, and then I want to ask you about several specific aspects of it. Sure. So from 1910 to 1945, you had Japan colonize Korea. All these Koreans had to leave the peninsula of Korea in order to come to Japan as either forcible migrants or as economic migrants or to just study mm-hmm. because they have better educational institutions at that point. Many of them stayed after the war. Many of them left. Some of them even went to North Korea to be repatriated. My book is only about one family and four generations of it within the context of this huge history. 
But a lot happens to them, which is good as a novelist. It's good to <laughs> spread them out and make them experience different, uh, different slices of society. So you have uh, you have Christianity in there. You have gangsterism in there. Sure. You have upper class uh, Japanese society. You have fishmongers. It's all there. It's all there. From what I understand, you worked on this for a long time or a version of a book that was like this and then just threw the whole thing away? Yeah, from 1996 to 2003, almost 2004, I wrote an entire book. Right. And it was called Motherland and it was about the Korean Japanese and it was really bad. (laughs) How was it bad? It was really boring. It was very self-righteous. It was very Uh angry. So it's kind of like a political treatise, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't very interesting as a book. Tell me if this is true. This isn't just a rare subject, writing about the Koreans living in Japan. In English, it's an all-but-unique subject. Is that right? This is the first novel written for adults, written in English, about the Korean Japanese in the world. Ever? Ever. So what did that tell you when you came across that fact? It made me realize that I have chosen the wrong topic. Why wrong? (laughs) Why? Because, you know, I think it takes a person with a lot of self-confidence to think that they're the pioneer. Uh Uh-huh. I was just thinking that I chose the wrong topic, but now that I found that I can't stop, it was kind of like throwing in good money after bad. I'd spent so much of my life doing this that I felt like I had to finish. And when I was finished, my attitude is I need to go on to the next thing because I was hoping that I would have greater success. I had just given up a lot to write this book. So I felt really dumb a lot of the times when I was working on it. You knew that there weren't books because you hadn't read the books, but you probably expected to find some scholarship or some... I found a ton of scholarship. I just didn't find any fiction. It seemed to me that the reason why people weren't trying to write this kind of book is because the law is so complicated. The law is complicated. The history is really complicated. It's 100 years. And you really can't tell it as a slice. Like if you try to tell it from, let's say, 1970, 1990, which is what I tried to do before, mm-hmm. it doesn't your make fail, that much. Your failed book that you My failed away. book. Yes. It doesn't make that much sense because you didn't understand why these people are so angry all the time. Yeah. But if you start from the very, very beginning, you realize, oh, this is the reason why they were so, so upset. Or in the same way, you start to realize how powerful and interesting and romantic the story is when you see the whole context of it. So that's the reason why I had to rewrite it. Yes. Then it can read like Les Miserables or sure. like, well, <laughs> yes, I mean, no, you, exactly. I mean, I wish I could write as well as Victor but Hugo. you even have the uh, the uh, teenage pregnancy, mm-hmm. the, 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 there's a lot of Les Miserables in there. There's I no revolution so. at the end. No revolution at the end. Because pe- they're still living in Japan. Yes. I guess since 93, they haven't And they don't had, want a revolution. No. I guess since 93, they haven't had to register and ask permission exactly. to stay. Mm-hmm. So maybe some things have uh, gotten better. If you look at the immigration laws in Japan, almost all of the civil rights advances were made by Koreans. So if you look at the book by Erin Chung, who's, who's a legal scholar at Johns Hopkins who studies the immigration law of Japan, she actually talks about the advances in civil rights that the Koreans have had to agitate. In the same way, like Asian Americans have been the beneficiaries of the agitations of, of African Americans in this country. So the people who caused trouble yeah. in Japan were Koreans. But are they the biggest immigrant group in Japan? If they, if Not anymore. If you, now no. it's Chinese. Ethnic but, Chinese. And they're considered a problem group, too. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's not is, my wheelhouse. <laughs> we're saying immigrant group. That same group would not be considered an immigrant group after three generations in America. I or mean, Australia or England yeah, yeah, or Canada. Yeah. It's just Japan and other countries, it's really about blood. Because mm-hmm. it's not even about the way we look because I can pass for Japanese if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. 
So we would consider this racist. Do the Koreans in Japan, would they use the phrase racism or understand it as racist in the way we do? No, they would actually see it as culturally their norm. Uh huh. And that because it's not your country, you can't make up the rules. Oh, okay. Do they have a point? I mean, that's a decent anthropological point, but (laughs) here we are walking around with this idea of racism in our heads. Yeah. I think it's very hurtful to think that you're hated all the time. So you have to think of the story that you can live with. Yeah. I think that I was reading a lot of history and anthropology and sociology written by very sympathetic, progressive academics. Yes, yes. And words like (laughs) colonialism and racism would probably appear a lot. Occupation. Right. Exploitation. All those words. To the people that you were talking to, while those words may be true as like a superstructure for you and I to understand it, for them probably didn't have any meaning. No, they thought that I was overreacting. Mm-hmm. They actually told me. They're like, Minjin, you're getting really upset about something when this is just my life and this is the way it's always been and I'm just fine, thank you very much. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, I need to rethink this because they were so hardy and kind of tough. They're really badass. Like They're like really OG about everything. So I had to kind of go, okay. Koreans? Those aren't the Koreans I know. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they're so... the toughest people. I lived in Korea for a little oh, while. They okay. will put up with anything. Yeah. <laughs> Bad winters. Including Bad each other. summers. <laughs> terrible governments. Yeah. They just power through and make this sound. <laughs> yeah. And I've been interviewing all these South Koreans lately about what's going on with North Korea. They're like, we are not worried. I'm going, oh, okay, because everybody else is worried, but you're okay. So I think that that was very helpful for me. And then I realized that, of course, I'm Korean American, so I'm soft. Do you think that your book is written so that a, there's probably some evidence of this, but would a South Korean who has lived most of her life in South Korea have understood the novel in the same way that someone from your milieu, a South Korean American, would? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've had responses from both, and they've both been incredibly positive because people aren't talking about this history. It's an embarrassing moment in Korean history. So they're really surprised that I was interested in it. And But I don't think of it as something embarrassing. I think that you can say colonialism was definitely embarrassing. But the fact that these people are doing so well, as well as they're so forgiving in lots of ways and resilient, I think that's a real triumph. Couple other questions. One is you could have named this a few things, yes. like I guess kimchi. Um, <laughs> kimchi plays a big role, and not just because it's Korea. Uh, you could have named it after a character. I think the name Pachinko is good for a few reasons. One, there's a lot of symbolism to Pachinko, but two, it is it is recognizable to some percentage of your intended audience, mm-hmm. but also recognizable as a foreign word and a mostly foreign phenomenon. I don't see too many pachinko parlors here in the United States. There are none. Yeah, really? There's, there's absolutely no None for actual parlor. where you can make money on Right, it, right? there's I no parlor. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think that's a good title. Were you set on your title early on? My first book was called Motherland. Yeah. And that had to go. Yeah. But then it became pachinko because... Pachinko, the $203 billion industry in Japan, is really important. And it's an adult gambling game, which is incredibly unfair. You are going to lose your shirt. That's how gambling works. That's how gambling works. (laughs) And yet, I think it's kind of like life today. I think that things are unfair. There are a lot of things you can't control. But I think you have to show up and you have to try. Do you think, is there any reason why Asian cultures, all of them, as far as I know, I don't know. I don't know about the Burmese, but most of them that I know love gambling. Oh, well, so many of the East Asian countries that love gambling 
have suffered in the past 100, 200 years with political situations Mm -hmm. in which money was withheld from them. Consequently, the wish for money is quite severe and necessary. That said, the political and class structures don't allow always for economic mobility. Right. And consequently, you have to wish that maybe you can get lucky. Yes. And gambling is all about luck. Yeah. (laughs) The idea of the meritocracy Mm -hmm. and just results are drummed into us in America. And it's not like we don't love gambling. But when you come from a culture where that's not there, the role of luck or the idea of luck, it seems, plays an outsized role. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can't trust that things are going to work out. So you have to just throw the dice. The uh, cover of the hardcover was a pachinko machine. Yes. But I guess it seemed abstract to some people. Mm -hmm. This one is what you would – the cover of the soft cover that I'm looking at is a woman wearing a kimono. Would that be a kimono? It's a hanbok. It's a hanbok. And and then within her dress you see a a landscape much more conventional. Was And you have them – and you have Sanja and her two sons. Right. So you ha- right, so, and you have the idea of like a woman looking back at some uh, a small family with a perhaps a large daunting journey in front of us fairly reflects what went on. Was there a thought that okay, we've got to redo the cover for some reason? It was too confusing to people, or just a new opportunity to market it in a slightly different way? I think you've been talking to my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, no, yeah, that's what no, I'm here, interested in. here, let me tell you. Well, first of all, I designed this cover. Really? It's beautiful. Thank you very much. No, I I saw a beautiful painting by another person where she had, it was a woman with a kimono with a story inside of her kimono. I thought, oh, we should do that for Pachinko because people wanted a more literal cover. One of the things that I'm running up against, even though I'm an American, is that I have a foreign name, Minjin Lee, foreign name. It's not like Betty Smith. And I have a foreign title. And then we had an abstract cover. So we had three things that went to the average person like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) So then I had to make something simpler. And then the publisher said, we love the cover and everybody loved how beautiful it was. However, they thought we would like a bit more of the story. When you had literal photographs of people, because this is a third iteration of the paperback cover because we had to say no to the first two. It was really confusing because very often Asian models could be of different ethnicities. And to me, I can sort of tell who's East Asian and who's South Asian, but not everybody can. Yeah. And or like a kimono versus a chung sam versus a hanbok. It's confusing, which I, I think it makes perfect sense because it's not like these things are taught anywhere. Yeah. Right. So it, there's no reason why you should have to know this. So I wanted to kind of share a bit of my, my culture. Hanboks, I think, are quite beautiful. They're incredibly figure flattering, too, for women. <laughs> And I saw the, I, th- I guess it would be the cover in uh, either Europe or England, and it was a black and white photograph from like the 1920s of- That uh, was a UK the, cover. That was a UK cover. Mm-hmm. That did nothing for me. That looked, like a, <laughs> that, looked like a boring his- that looked like a boring history rather than an actual novel. Yeah, it's yeah. very funny. People have said that, but it got, it, but it was uh, probably one of the best reviewed books ever in history. Well, it's going to be well right. reviewed because yeah. it's a good book. <laughs> Yeah, And insofar as you can't judge a book by its cover, still people do, and you want yes. the book to sell. This looks more fun to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks sweeping. It looks. I just have this uh, – tell me if this happened. You're in a meeting where you're talking about covers, and they actually pull out the cover of Memoirs of a Geisha. Did that happen? Oh, but something like it did, absolutely. Yeah. They showed me a woman wearing a chung sum, and I had to say that's actually a Chinese dress, but, but thank you very much. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I love talking about covers and I love talking about content and I enjoy talking to you, Min Jin Lee, who is the author of national bestseller, Pachinko, finalist for the National Book Award, uh, broad sweeping history. Some would call it the Les Mis of uh, South Korea. No, I I will not call it that. (laughs) Thank you. Great to meet you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. There's a voterama going on over the tax bill slash the 13 million people without health care bill. That's the most important thing in America. Though there is also word that Trump might have soured. That's the phrase the New York Times used. Soured on Rex Tillerson and will replace him with CIA chief Mike Pompeo. Also huge. When Trump decided on Tillerson, here's how he described him. Well, in his case, he's much more than a business executive. I mean, he's a world-class player. He's in charge of, I guess, the largest company in the world. Well, actually, the largest companies in the world are Sinopec of China, China Natural Petroleum, Toyota, Volkswagen, Shell, Berkshire Hathaway, Apple, and then Exxon. So I guess he's in charge of the largest company whose president or whose people Donald Trump hadn't insulted or alienated up to that point. And as for the first part, world-class player, well, guess what? Player got played. It's like they say, don't hate the player, hate the president of the United States, who is impetuous, exasperating, and rudderless. It will be interesting to see if Mike Pompeo believes in Tillerson's strategy of never filling important posts, diplomacy by absence. So what I'd like to highlight I acknowledge it's not the most important story of the day. It's not the second most important story of the day. It's not even something Trump tweeted today, but it's really important. And it's just being filed under the Trump's at it again. Well, he is at it again, but it's horrible. So after bashing NBC for having employed a serial sexual aggressor, and really what decent corporation would do that, Trump tweeted, will they terminate low ratings Joe Scarborough based on the unsolved mystery That took place in Florida years ago. Investigate. The unsolved mystery is anything but. It is the notion popular in the fringiest of right-wing sites, a.k.a. this administration's foundational texts, that Joe Scarborough, you ready for this? Committed a murder. You see, back in 1999, when Scarborough was a congressman, one of his employees passed out at her desk and hit her head and she died. An autopsy showed that she had an undiagnosed heart defect and that made her lose consciousness and the blow to the head killed her. It's a tragedy. It's a mystery? Nope, not a mystery. For the president to use this smear against a member of the media, and even though it's personal between Trump and Scarborough, he's doing it because he was criticized. It's unconscionable. Let's just make clear and underline how terrible this is. Presidents have used nefarious means to smear opponents forever. Andrew Jackson's men accused John Quincy Adams of being a pimp. Didn't have the kind of cool connotations it does now. LBJ's henchmen actually wrote fake letters to Ann Landers, purporting to be just regular Americans who were scared of Barry Goldwater. So those are examples of smears against political rivals. But presidents have also lashed out against press critics, too. Perhaps most notoriously, the columnist Jack Anderson was the target of an assassination plot orchestrated by Nixon White House aide Charles Colson. I was reading about the Nixon case. And by the way, I was also listening about the Nixon case because Slate's new podcast, Slow Burn, is 
excellent, but I was reading about it in The New Yorker, The New Yorker from 1973, some back issues for when Nixon was in power. And in 73, Richard Harris wrote this, since President Nixon's administration constantly did things in secret that would have been unacceptable to the public if they had been done in the open, there was always a danger that the press might discover and reveal what was going on. This makes me think that what Trump is doing today is worse than what Nixon did, even with all its paranoia and the enemies list and Watergate. At least Nixon knew to keep the nefariousness private. It would have been, listen to Harris's words, unacceptable had they done it in the open. But Trump just tweeted this lunatic theory, this barbaric calumny to the whole world, and there are just no mechanisms to unaccept it. Obviously... Actually, assassinating a guy would have been worse than tweeting about investigating Joe Scarborough. Scarborough, I'm sure, would rather have the tweet than the assassination plot. But for a president to so brazenly resort to this thuggery, to stick it to a guy whose opinion he doesn't like, in so open a setting, that is why we talk about norms. Trump is worse than Nixon. Nixon at least tried to keep his hands clean. Trump brags about his misdeeds. Nixon had his plumbers and the Cubans, and they at least had the decency to try to pull off their crimes in secret. Trump says, we love WikiLeaks. It's as if Nixon went on laughing and said, Daniel Ellsberg, sock it to him. Man, we have gone down a dangerous, dangerous road. And partisanship these days, it's so bad that Trump acolytes can't recognize what their guy in the White House is doing. Back when Scarborough was a congressman and later host of Scarborough Country, which was more of a right-wing, just kind of conservative show on MSNBC. Liberals delighted in dredging up this libel. Michael Moore, in fact, once registered, Joe Scarborough killed his intern.com, and the Daily Coast and its founder bandied about this tale. But back then, it was easy to dismiss it as amoral rantings of politically motivated hatchet men. Well, I guess it still is, only we now call that man president. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien who's willing to forgive all matters of predation so long as he gets his poems. The Gist was also produced by Mary Wilson. Well, in the moment she could tear herself away from the frozen rhubarb pie. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He wants you to know that we'll be doing a show <sighs> in Tanglewood. Wait, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. He meant we would be tangled in legal proceedings if we were ever that confused about how shirts work. The gist. Be well, do good work, and keep in touch. But on that last part, not literally. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.